Good morning. My name is Brad, and I am on staff with the Navigators, and I get to share a little bit this morning. But the question that we were left with is that we're all on mission, or the statement, rather. The question I have that I've been asking myself recently is, what does it look like for you, what does it look like for me to live among the lost, to live among those that don't know Jesus? If you're at all like me, it's a whole lot more difficult than maybe I'd like to admit because it's more comfortable to live among other Christians. Living among the lost is messy. It's inconvenient. Sometimes it's a little bit too demanding. But I've been encouraged recently by three friends, the Apostle Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who together give us a glimpse at what it was like for them to live among the lost as we read through the book of Thessalonians. So we're going to read that in just a second, the first few verses at least, but let me map out a little bit of what you're going to experience this morning. I get to lay the biblical foundations and the missional strategy behind what we talk about as missional enterprise or business as mission. And then Ben Carlson gets to come up and he gets to tell his story. He gets to bring life to what I talk about. He gets to help you taste it and touch it and feel it. And you've probably even smelled some of it in the hallway as you came in this morning with the coffee. But let's start in 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, starting in, chapter, in verse 2. It says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much, with much affliction." with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. First Thessalonians gives us a great model to set the stage for what Ben is going to share about what it's like to do ministry among the poorest of the poor, coffee farmers in the hills of Burundi. But before he shares, we're going to pull out a couple of principles from this text in Thessalonians. The first one we find in verse 5, where Paul says, you know how we prove to be among you for your sake. Principle number one, living among the lost for their sake. The world is complex, isn't it, today? It's full of closed countries where you can't have difficult to gain access with the gospel. There's extreme poverty all over the place in all corners of the world. There is human trafficking and so much more. So how do we bring the fullness of the gospel into the world's most broken and unreached places? How can we do it in a way that's holistic, in a way that's sustainable, in other words, how can we see followers of Jesus effectively living and discipling among the lost, bringing the good news to those around them? Ben and I are 
convinced that one of the most significant ways to do that in the world that we live in today is something we call missional enterprise. Missional enterprises give us a legitimate and credible presence in the communities that we're working in so that we can begin to break down the barriers to the gospel. Paul lived among the Thessalonians for their sake. And missional enterprise was part of his strategy and part of our strategy to reach those hardest to reach places. Because enterprises or businesses give us access for their sake in a way that they can receive and accept. So a couple of things I want you to look for out of this first principle as Ben shares his story. Look for the for your sake. Look for the living among. Look for the credibility of his presence among these coffee farmers and the blessing that he's bringing to them with his team. First Thessalonians also helps us see another principle that's been encouraging to me and challenging. In verses 6 through 8, we see that Paul's strategy was both reproducible and transferable. In fact, immediately in those verses, we see that the gospel message went from Paul to the Thessalonians to the Macedonians and the Achaeans, and then it rang out everywhere. We see four generations of believers in those few verses. That's pretty cool. So the question that I ask myself and that I ask you is, are the models of ministry that we use, whether intentionally or oftentimes unintentionally, are those models reproducible? Are they usable by the second and third and fourth generation? These are critical questions that we have to ask ourselves as we do ministry. Once I leave, is it reproducible or does it end with me? Missional enterprises are not only reproducible, they are transferable. So, One of our Latin American leaders, who's a Mexican, said to a friend of mine, Jack and his family, as they arrived in Colombia in the 1980s, just a new family in the middle of the drug wars, kidnappings all over the place. He shows up in Colombia, and this Mexican leader says to Jack and his family, you know, Jack, to talk about the Great Commission in Latin America is cruel like he just got slapped upside the face. I just brought my family here because of the Great Commission. What do you mean it's cruel? But what he was saying is that the model of full-time Christian missionaries that we've exported from the West is not reproducible in Latin America in the same way that it is here. But yet it is the model that we've exported. So we've got to ask ourselves, are the models of ministry that we are using Are they reproducible after we leave? The poorest of the poor countries of the world don't have a concept of professional missionary. In a missional enterprise context, we are bringing the gospel of the kingdom to bear on the everyday, all-day interactions that we have with employees, customers, vendors, competitors, government officials. Part of what missional enterprise offers is that life-on-life context to do ministry where people can see the difference that Jesus makes in the ethical and moral decisions that we're faced with. 
in how we design our HR policies, how we handle conflict, how we hire and fire employees, how we handle finances, how we honor our contracts, and more. The way a missional entrepreneur integrates the Word of God into his or her business allows those that they work with to see the gospel in real life, to see it in motion. The gospel becomes real, and it's reproducible and transferable as it flows from generation to generation in the context of real life. So as Ben shares his story, look for signs of how the gospel of the good news of the kingdom is integrated integrated into his business. See if you can see how he's modeling something that can be reproducible from generation to generation. In our global enterprise network, which is that business's mission or missional enterprise network of the navigators. We've got about 250 or so missional enterprises around the world, very similar to Ben's. Before I came back to the U.S. five years ago to help train and resource our missional entrepreneurs, I had the opportunity to, to be a part of launching two missional enterprises in Southeast Asia. One was a resort destination, bought an island, built a resort, Second was a leadership development um, management consulting company. And whether or not you all know it, you are a significant part of launching those two enterprises that are thriving still today, reaching hundreds and upon hundreds of Muslims with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus. So thank you for what you've been a part of. And if you want to come back tonight, I'm going to unpack those stories and share more of how maybe you could get involved in some of these enterprises around the world. So what keeps Ben and the other 200-plus missional entrepreneurs in our network, what keeps them committed? Every one of these business owners says, my business exists to advance the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom into the nations. That's why it exists. And we get to help them do that through a radical commitment to what we call our triple bottom line. So that triple bottom line obviously has three components to it. The first is financial sustainability. In a lot of countries, you can't be a missionary for a lot of different reasons. And if we're not doing real business, they can smell it. But we're not committed to doing real business just so we can pass the smell test and stay in the country we're committed to real business because there's credibility, there's integrity on the line. Are we really doing what we say we're doing? Do we really believe that doing business is just as spiritual as reading the Bible? I'm convinced that God tells us in his word that he loves commerce and that without margin, that evil little word prophet, there's no ministry. The second bottom line is social impact. The gospel is more than Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and here's your free get out of hell card. Jesus came to set the captives free, to give freedom to bring justice to the oppressed. Jesus healed the sick. 
He raised the dead. He fed the hungry. And he preached the good news of the kingdom. The missional enterprises in our network have a holistic commitment to making a social impact as part of their gospel proclamation. They provide jobs for the homeless, access to health care, opportunities for education to children of employees. They facilitate community development initiatives from their profits. The third bottom line is spiritual transformation. This is what sets us apart from traditional business, from the social enterprise movement. We are unashamedly committed to seeing employees, customers, vendors, all stakeholders have a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. Access to the good news of Jesus and his kingdom and providing a context where the gospel can flow into the lives of everyone connected to the enterprise is what motivates our missional entrepreneurs. And in the middle of that triangle, the kingdom values that push out from the center and influence each of those bottom lines, they are what give the shape and inform the how of how we do each of those bottom lines. Our goal is an equilateral triangle, that all those things would be done equally well. But the reality is some of those triangles are a little bit lopsided, a little bit isosceles, That resourcing and helping coming alongside our missional entrepreneurs is part of what the Global Enterprise Network is all about. And I get to come alongside Ben along with others so that together we can strengthen his triple bottom line and give shape to his triangle. Missional entrepreneurs, missional enterprises give us the opportunity to live among the lost, to do it for their sake to build sustainable, credible, reproducible models of ministry that can bring spiritual, social, and economic transformation to the third and fourth generation in the communities that they live in. We are living in a generation of global game changers. And many of you are probably some of those people who are saying, I want to use my passions, my skills, my experiences, my education to make a difference and advance the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom into the nations. I really believe it is like a huge wave, and we can either choose to surf that wave or we can let the wave pass on by. But if we're going to make the difference that God is churning up in our hearts and in our guts, We've got to be willing to take the risk and surf the wave. Ben and Christy, along with their two amazing kids, they're global game changers. And they have gotten on that wave and they're surfing it at huge risk. They have figured out a way how to commercialize their passion for Jesus, the nations, and coffee for the sake of God's glory among the nations. They are radically committed to a triple bottom line, to making a social impact, to make, offering a space for spiritual transformation, but committed to profitability. So I'm going to let Ben come up and unpack this a little bit more and share his story of what it looks like to live among the Burundian people in the coffee hills where he works. Ben, thanks for the cup of coffee, brother. It's a pleasure. 
You know, I was having a, I was having a really bad week. And I was walking from my house to my coffee lab office in Burundian. And I was thinking about, man, this has been a bad, this has been a bad week. You've all had bad weeks. I know you have. And then as, a, as I was walking, I realized, no, nah, it hasn't been a bad week. It's been a bad month. You've had those months, I'm sure. And then I realized, actually, I missed a letter. It's not a month. It's, it was, I, I was actually in the midst of bad months. It had been bad months. By the time I got to the office and I got in the office and I, and I sat down, I had a cup of coffee and I, I was actually thinking it hasn't just been bad months. It's been a bad couple of years. <laughs> and, I mean, I, I hate to tell you, but I, was, I think I was having a little bit of a pity party. You ever have that? Feeling kind of sorry for myself? Oh, man, it's been a bad couple of years. There's been things to celebrate, but the reality is, is it's, not that been, it's not been terrible. It's just, it's been really hard. And then I got a phone call. Sitting in my office, telephone rings. Pick it up and it's this guy, Omer. And Omer is the, in Burundi you always have to have a guy. And Omer is my guy. So Omer is an insider in the coffee, in government, and NGO world. He just, he's the first guy I knew in the country. Solid guy. And... Omer says, Ben, where are you? I said, I'm in my office. He's like, don't go anywhere. There are people out to get you. You see, I had gone for the last two years, uh, we had started two washing stations. A washing station essentially is the place where communities of farmers bring their coffee cherries and then you process to sell. These washing stations have been there since the 1930s when the Belgians first planted coffee. And when Christy and I started our washing stations, we started to ruffle some feathers. And some feathers were ruffled a little bit too much, I guess. The Omer on the phone said, Antoine, this cooperative leader that we'd been working with for two years, He's ahead of the government up in the hills where we're at, the, the political party that's in power. He's friends with the secret police. And he's phoned them, and they're going to come and get you. And I'm like, I'm thinking, you know, just a minute ago, Brad said, oh, you know, these great, you know, these great missional entrepreneurs like Ben, you know, live in the gospel. I'm like, this is not what I signed up for. I do not want to go to prison or just disappear. So I put down the phone, I call in uh, two managers, and I give them a stack of money, and I say, if something happens to me, this is why, make sure Christy and the boys are okay. I phone my lawyer to say, okay, this might happen, I just want you to know, I don't know where I'm going to go, but uh, you need to know. And then I thought, what next? You see, 
farmers in Burundi, they have to deliver their coffee to a place to sell. And for years, the government has been abusing, using, stealing uh, from these farmers, the very farmers that they're, they're earning their income from. We're talking, you know, generations of, of corruption. And then we come along and we're a little shining light and that can really be a problem. So we've had this government stations and then we had this guy, Frederick, that what he did was laid down levels of bribes and layers and layers of bribes along the way to try to stop us from, from wrecking his income, from being able to take advantage of these farmers. Earlier in the year, what had happened was we have a group of hills that we work with the farmers and we were taking a truck. We collected their coffee chairs and we're taking the truck and we're coming down to the station and we have to pass this guy's washing station. And it just made him angry because he'd, he'd been just essentially stealing coffee from these farmers for years and now we come along and all the farmers are saying, see you later, I'm going to Long Miles. He didn't like it. So he bribed the official from the village and that official bribed a whole bunch of youth and got them drunk and these youth got torches, they blockaded the road, and they got machetes out, and they just waited for us, waited for the truck. When the truck came down the road, it's not a fun sight. What do you do with a crowd of angry, intoxicated youth that think you are stealing our neighbor's coffee? So that's the story. The story is Ben is stealing. And Brad just said, I was there to, to make an impact, to, to spread the gospel. And I don't think you can do that when you're stealing. And yet, how do you explain that to a group of youth? So we call up the, 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 the chief of the hill. And we say, we need your help. So the chief of the hill comes down and says, what are you doing? This other guy, this Frederick, he's been stealing our coffee. Since from, and people like him have been stealing coffee from me and my father and my grandfather. Ben and Long Miles, they're treating us right. Diffuse the situation. They take the roadblock down and we pass on. But fast forward a little bit later and all of a sudden now I'm getting a phone call. It hasn't stopped. We're still ruffling feathers. We're still not making people happy. So what do I do? Well, the night before I'd been reading a, just a, a book it's called The Alchemist. And there's this section in the book. It says, tell your heart that the fear of suffering is worse than suffering itself. And that no heart has ever suffered when it goes in search of its dreams. Because every second of the search is a second's encounter with God and with eternity. When I read that the night before, I did not think that this was the kind of encounter with God I was anticipating. I mean, I want to encounter God, but I, was, I didn't want to encounter that kind of encounter. Like, I, I could hold off for a few years. It was not comfortable. So what I did, after the manager left, the managers left, I told them what was happening. I breathed. I said that prayer, and I think every one of you has said that prayer before. 
you know, right before a test or maybe a job interview or the police pull you over and you're like, oh dear God, I, I will never speed again. And I'm going to go to church Sunday. I'm going to be there on time. You know, like that prayer. I said that prayer. And then I picked up the phone and I called Antoine. The guy that was calling the secret police to come and arrest me. And I called him and I said, Antoine, I really think that we should get together. Why don't you and the other cooperative leaders come and let's get together and talk. This is where I'm at. This is the address. It's like giving ammunition to the firing squad. You know, our story can be a reflection of God. Uh, and, I, and I'm using this word today, this, this word story, but I think I grew up and I was calling it something else. And I think many of you call it something else or have called it something else. And we call it testimony or witness. But, but for my purpose this morning, I'm going I'm to call it story. And there's, um, there's, a, there's a chapter in the Bible that really helps define that and really because it's the really it defines the reflection of God because that's really what our story is it's not us it's God we're reflecting God so if you look at Matthew chapter 5 13 through 16 it says you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So let me give you a little, little background, a little context to this. Like, why did we go to Burundi in the first place? If people just don't like what I'm doing and they want to throw me in jail, why go? So we back up. It's 2010. The war and the genocide in Burundi has just wrapped up, and the World Bank has given a big grant to privatize the coffee sector to try to help stimulate the country so that they can just be a sustainable country. I get called in to come in and do a consulting job to see if I can help make it specialty coffee. Now, you have to understand that I, I, had, I was in Durban, South Africa. Durban, South Africa is like the San Diego of Africa. There is nothing wrong with Durban. Durban is a beautiful place. Surf 365 days a year, but I'm from Wisconsin, so it didn't help me at all. <laughs> so I come to Burundi this, this, this place of post-conflict, genocide, turmoil, second poorest country in the world, but it does top one chart, which is the most corrupt country in the world. But what I saw amazed me. I saw the potential. I saw the potential in this place. So I'm, I come back from Burundi and I tell Christy, I say, Christy, this is what we've been praying for. This is where we need to go. This is 2010. Do not Google search Burundi. She Google searched it. 
the in-laws Google searched it. But we moved. We saw a place without hope. We saw a place with the people with no trust. So we made a little tagline for uh, what we were going to be. We're going to be Long Miles Coffee. Tagline is coffee, people, potential. We wanted to bring hope to the hopeless. We wanted to provide a place where people could trust. We wanted to be a light that would lead to transformation. But we realized that to do this, it was going to take action. And we had a choice. That this action was to redefine story, redefine testimony. When I went to Burundi, I tried to do the typical navigator, Bible study, man-to-man. That's what we do. Like, we want spiritual generations, and you do it through Bible study, man-to-man. But it wasn't working. I was like, but this is what I know. This is what I do. What I realized, it's, it, it wasn't what I do. It's not what I do. It's not what you do. It was the quality of relationship. If you look at Philippians 2, it really defines the character of what you need to do to have a story. It says your attitude should be that the same of Christ. What is this attitude? It's one of a servant. I realized, and Christy and I talked about this, we realized it is not what we do. It is our character. And our character is what can give us a life of impact. And that's what we wanted. We wanted a life of impact. But in order to get this life of impact, we realized that we had some choices to make. Everyone's story has many paths. and It's a paradigm. You have have to choose the direction you're going to go. So we asked ourselves two questions. And these were really defining questions so that we could not just live, but live this life. One was, am I choosing, intentionally choosing, a life of impact? And number two was, am I living a life whose character is a compelling story to those around me? Because really, this is the doorway to relationships. This was the doorway to impact. So once again, let me map out some of these choices for you. We went from Durban, where it was really safe, where we had a great ministry and a great life, and we were enjoying it. We had great friends. But we saw that we, we were being called. Our passions were leading us to Burundi. But from here to here, we had to take a big step. Your story requires you to take steps. And I would say that those steps are risks. So we took a risk. We moved to Burundi. We got to Burundi, and I was just sourcing coffee. Guys like Brad were coming alongside me and saying, trying to help me with that, that, you know, that triangle. And I'm like, I don't, I'm not doing anything. I don't understand where I'm going. They're like, just keep at it. We realized that really when we were there, we weren't impacting transformation. We weren't really that much of a light. I was actually holding coffee prices down for farmers and really not doing much of an impact in community. I said, well, this is, I'm doing the actually opposite of what we're here to do. So Christy was the one that said, we need to make another choice. We need to take another risk. We either go back to Durban, where life was good, but God's called us here. So what we need to do is, there are these washing stations. That's where the community gathers. 
That's where we can make an impact. That's where our life can be an impact. So we either go back or we go all in. So we took a risk. We took another step. The next risk was to build the washing station. When we built the washing station, that really put us out there. So it's Christy and I battling away. We brought this guy Fabrice along board. So Fabrice, Christy and I, and we were impacting 300 families. We're like, finally, we're doing it. But along the way, this guy's like, Frederick didn't like it. Because when you're a light, everybody sees it. You're on a hill. You are not hidden. It was starting to cause some tension. But as these farmers were interacting with us, one farmer comes up to me, tear in his eye. He's like, thank you. I've been delivering coffee to the guys like Frederick. And last year, we were delivering coffee and they were gonna stop the delivery day. And I had to get this coffee. And so we were all kind of crowding around. We were trying to get our coffee in. So the manager came out and he pushed us down and he beat me. And then he said, I don't want your coffee. Get out of here. He's like, that was my whole year's income. So he said, thank you. So he said, we're, at that day, I knew we were doing something right. But the reality was, was that that farmer didn't keep it to himself. He went to his neighbors and the next hill and the next hill. They found out what we were doing. Pretty soon we had four other communities asking, can you do this with us? So Christy and I talked about it again and we took another risk. We said, let's build another washing station. And then we went from Christy and I with Fabrice and 300 families to Christy, Fabrice and I and 14 full-time staff and 200 seasonal employees impacting 3,000 families. And then there's a young lady from South Africa that was with us, Lauren. And she recruited an, an agronomist named Epaphras. And Epaphras, Lauren, Christy and I sat in the room and said, how are we going to advance the gospel? How can we be a light to 3,000 families? It's too much. So that's when we got the idea. Let's do coffee scouts. Let's, let's recruit the youth. They're graduating from high school. They don't have jobs. Let's recruit them to be a part of us. So now we're in the homes of these 3,000 families because their sons and daughters, their neighbors' kids are working with us. And they're not just training how to make better coffee, but they're also sharing the love of Jesus. And we're seeing transformation on a, on a level that we could never have imagined. But the theme was that we had to step out. Never would have happened unless we took a risk. And I would say that that risk, that story, is defined by our character. And there's a great, there's like one, of my, my, one of my favorite authors and speakers is a navigator named Jim Peterson. And Jim Peterson, he says, you know what, if, if, you're gonna, if you want your story to make a difference, it's your character. Your character should be defined by God's character. And so he outlines four things. Integrity, which is justice. Holiness, righteousness, truth. And then there's love. You know what the opposite of love is? Fear. Fear opposes love. And the next thing is humility. When justice and, and love are kind of battling it out to see who wins, humility, you need humility and that wins. 
And that opens the door to intimacy. That opens the door to relationship and it diffuses conflict. And the fourth thing is forgiveness. Things diffuse with this, this, this tension with Antoine. Antoine and the leaders, they come down. They don't come with the secret police. They come down and essentially this Frederick guy and Antoine have been working together to say, Ben stole your coffee. He's going to run away. He doesn't have any money. He's not going to pay you. So the cooperative leader said, okay, we'll give you a week. Well, in a week, I was able to pay the farmers and the cooperatives and I paid them 10% more than anyone else in the country. So the next week, all the cooperative members said, we need to get together. This was all a bunch of lies. So we want to talk to you. So they called Antoine, they called me, and they, they, we sat together in a room, and there was just tension. And remember the four things of character? One of them is integrity and justice. And everyone in the room is like, justice is going to be done. Antoine is going to get it. The hand of God. I got to be the hand of God. You know, this guy. You know when you're right, doesn't it feel good? You know, walking into the room, everybody knows you're right. You know that they know that you know that they're, you know, you're right. So they're waiting for me to come down to Antoine. And essentially, I've got a chance to crush Antoine. Remove this enemy from the table so we can just start fresh. But I'll tell you what. I walked in the room, walked straight up to Antoine. I shook his hand and I said, thank you. Thank you for working with us for the last two years. I needed that for me. I needed that forgiveness. I knew what it was like to be in despair. Antoine had been living in despair. Everybody in the room was just like, yeah. That light flickered a little brighter. And now we start on year three. Who knows what's going to happen? But we do know that we have a relationship. We knew that our story is making an impact. And... I want to challenge you to say that your story is making an impact. Jesus did not call any of us to be part-time Christians. 1 Corinthians 7 said, stay where you were called. God is there. I happen to be called to Burundi. God is there. There's one of my favorite quotes come from, comes from a guy named Eric Little. They made a movie about him called Chariots of Fire. And he said, I believe that God made me for a purpose. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. So my hope, my prayer for long miles and for you is that we can feel his pleasure that you can lead a life of impact. Let's pray. God, I thank you for making us a light. I thank you that our story matters and that because of you and your son, that we can have a life that can be a light to those around us. Lord, I thank you that you make us equal, that there's no one more holy 
but only through your son, that we can make an impact, that our stories matter. So Lord, as we walk out of here today, let our light shine. Let our stories be one that impact those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.